Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar. Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Danny Wu, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I wanted to have on Sirit Sohi of Rolling Stone, Vice Sports, and lots of other great outlets because we're in this nebulous zone where training camp is just starting, and so I, I thought it was good to do kind of a broad-scale perspective. So we started talking about the Bulls, and because that's a team she knows very well. She wrote a great feature on Jimmy Butler for Rolling Stone earlier in the summer. And then we got into talking about legacies, talking about the way that the league can grow its profile, and I really love the conversation. It runs about an hour 40, and it, I, I enjoyed it. We go in a lot of different directions. It's hard for me to summarize, but I'm confident that you'll enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start with the Bulls because you've written, you've written well on them in the recent past, and also just because one of the things that changed between when we kind of set this up and, and now is the news that Mike Dunleavy is going to miss some time due to surgery. Yeah, that's, I think that's eight to ten weeks. Yeah, that's it. And I, I don't think it'll kill them, but they'll definitely run into problems without him. I think just the fact that he's out is... Uh, how they do without the Dunleavy is endemic of all the Bulls' problems. And we don't know how that's going to go with Fred Hoiberg this year, but they didn't they didn't play well without him at all. And, you know, that's not really good for a team that's supposed to be a contender for them to lose a role player like Dunleavy, who's 34 years old. He can get an injured in any minute. Like, yeah, of course, he's he's healthy, and he takes great care of his body, but age is age. And, you know, it's just, it's just not a good thing. And uh, it's kind of the thing that I point to when – you're trying to decide whether the Bulls are contenders or not, right? Yeah, and it's that, just basically like they don't have any other shooters, and that's really not a problem they fixed. So I'm curious to see how Hoiberg does out of the gate with this. I think they'll be fine depth-wise, but, you know, just 
the way they want to run their offense, I don't, you know, I don't know how that's going to go. They can slide Snell in. That could be fine. We might even see some Bobby Portis, depending on how the minutes are distributed, but not a great start. Yeah, and what's, what's kind of hard for the Bulls is that they have so much front court depth, but that depth does not really spill over to small forward. I mean, yeah, they, they might fiddle. I would love to see Bobby Portis just because intellectually it'd be fun. I don't love Miritich there, though I do love Miritich. But my, my other hope for a silver lining for it is that the need for shooting early in the season, I, I wouldn't say forces Hoiberg's hand because I think it's kind of what he wants anyway, but that, that Miritich gets minutes with the starters because I think that's really where this team is going to thrive. Yeah, you know, it could roll out perfectly if you if you think about it that way. I actually do think that by the end of the year that uh, Miritich will be starting over Gasol. Or, or maybe Noah. I mean, no one knows how Noah's health is going to go. I'm actually really curious to see how this works out. A lot of it's going to, you know, it's going to tell us things about Hoiberg's sensibilities, and it's also going to, you know, clean itself out based on health. If Noah is who he was two years ago, you know, then the Bulls are a totally different team, and he's starting, and when it comes time for extension talk, then he's going to get a pretty great deal. But if not, then uh, that relationship, no one really knows what's, where it's going to go. But yeah, no, I I really think Miradish is going to be starting by the end of the year. I think uh, it was pretty clear that Powell, while he got dogged on way too much, I thought, and kind of got inserted into the new like boozer punching bag role that Bulls fans have <laughs> had for him. He's coming up on age. He's uh, he doesn't really fit with the new age of the NBA, and and more importantly, I don't think Hoiberg is is like Tibbs, where he doesn't like like Tibbs didn't like any change, and he was very loyal to his players, and he never never would would uh, shift the starting lineup. But Hoiberg is coming in with a clean slate, and I think it's gonna be pretty clear that uh, the roster will just balance itself out better with Miritich at the four. Yeah, I agree with you, and it's going to be kind of interesting for the Bulls this year because. They have all this front court depth. It's a major thing, but they can't really, at this point, think about even moving any of them because the injury concern is so real that you never want to shorthand yourself, especially if you consider yourself a contender. And while I don't consider them in a group of like having a really strong chance of winning a title, they can get themselves in the conference finals mix. And once you get there, you never know. You know that that's just the way that it works. But as much as I like Bobby Portis. I don't think he is near the point yet where you can say, oh, well, you have him, he can fill X spot, so that means you can move this other player, and he could be there, you know, in in a year, we could be sitting there going, okay, that's what, what enabled them to trade Taj Gibson, let's say, that would be one of the options, but right now, there's so much uncertainty with Joachim Noah, there's so much uncertainty with Powell, that you can't move either of them now because that just creates a circumstance that they couldn't recover from in the worst-case scenario. I like the way you say uh, Joachim Noah. Is that the right way to say it? I have no idea. I, sh- <laughs> I, I should. I, I don't know. It, well, I also say French, so. Yeah, but I, I can't say for sure. All right, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick it up just because I like it. I like how that sounds. There we go. And yeah, I think I think you're right. And I think I think the problem is that regardless of whether they're contenders, they have to think of themselves that way. Because if they don't, then you deal with the fact that they're they're in this weird spot. Because you can't call it mediocrity. Because they're too good for they're too good for that, right? But they're also, you know, I, I think it's been proven year and year again that we overrate the Bulls because they work really hard. And that was, you know, that was Tom Thibodeau. And but you know, in the playoffs, everyone's working hard. So I think what we'll see this year is like, can they work? hard? Like, will they work less hard? And if they do, and they work more smart, which I hope they do, and, like, who knows, like, maybe Fred Hoiberg crashes and burns, but if they do work more smart, 
does that balance itself out and leave the bulls exactly where they are? Are they a little less? Are they a little better or are they a little worse? Right. And it's tough because they still don't have depth behind Derrick Rose, which means that their ceiling to me is entirely dependent on how close he is to what he can be, and so that is partially about work and also partially in a way you could even describe it as luck. You know how. How physically can he get to, not even where he was, but if he can get to, let's say, like 90% of his MVP form, I think that's enough to make them relevant in the larger picture. But it's always hard when somebody's coming back from an injury like that to really say that with any certainty. Oh, yeah, that's kind of the story of the Bulls. And, well, you know, I'm not I'm not really sure about Rose, though, because as we all know, as we all learned, Jimmy Butler can actually play point guard. Yeah, he can, he can run the offense more, and we still need to see how that dynamic plays out, but I think that that could be the key for them surviving a less effective Rose, but that, that'll be hard, but it's their, it's really their only path forward, considering his backup is, is Aaron Brooks. Well, yeah, but uh, I was actually, I actually don't think Jimmy Butler should do that. I was alluding to uh, to the fact that he kind of decided to step on Rose's turf there a little bit. That's what we want to call it with the I'm ready to play point guard comment. I don't really think he is. I don't think he's the ball handler. Or like he's a good secondary playmaker, I mm-hmm. think. And he's a, he's obviously a good scorer, but I don't think he should really be really be playing point guard. Although I'm, I'm also really curious to see how the Rose Butler thing works out. I think it's a little worse. And uh, I think people played it off too quickly. I mean, these guys... I don't want to say they don't like each other. I don't know. But from what we've seen, I, I don't think that, like, if you take the narrative that was there in the beginning and then you add Jimmy Butler just being like, I can play the position of the guy who is also the alpha on the team. And I don't think I don't think you just brush that off. So I'm really curious to see what happens. And I think Hoiberg's just walking into a situation where, like, anything could happen. I think he's going to have to tour around. I don't know. I don't know what he's going to do, but it's kind of going to be like an elaborate game of chess for him right from the get-go. Like, just a lot of stuff to deal with. Yeah, and you can see how it would work out. I agree with you that Butler is more of a secondary than a primary, but the mentality of players and how they see themselves fitting into the mosaic of any team is a challenge. And and if a player thinks that thinks of themselves as that they should be more, that they deserve it or whatever and they don't have it, then that can lead to problems whether or not that feeling is grounded in reality. Right. Right. That's absolutely right. I don't want to presume too much, but, you know, I'm on, I'm on a podcast, so I don't really have to check anything. But, you know, <laughs> I get it. I get a feeling that I don't know that Jimmy Butler even said that because he really thinks he can play point guard. Like, maybe he's just sending a message. That's an interesting idea. I, I, that could definitely be. I, I, the way I like to think about it with somebody, and you have a better better sense of Jimmy Butler than I do, is that most most guys have an understanding that everything that they say is going to be blown big, so usually they don't say anything that's kind of off the cuff in a way that that they haven't thought about the consequences. Right, and I think this is like this was kind of the perfect play for him. Like It was just... It was right on the line, and you could understand where it was coming from. And by the way, I don't want to. I don't want to make anyone presume that I have a relationship with Jimmy Butler in any, in any sense. Like I just, I talked to him once for thirty minutes. It was awesome, but you know, it was a great interview. But no, like this is just this is just uh, stuff that I was thinking, regardless of whether I'd ever spoken to him. I mean, yeah, that's. I asked him about I asked him about uh, Rose on the record, and he did respond, and uh, it was pretty clear that his tone was different. You can even. If you read the page, if you read that on the page, it was easy to tell. I think uh, a lot of people thought so. 
but yeah, no, no, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be fun. It's gonna be. F- I'm always uh, I'm always really interested in seeing how good teams deal with uh, with issues uh, with issues like that, just because it goes against the notion that you have to like each other to play well together. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And there were there are times. I mean, I cover the Warriors where, as much as they have great team chemistry and the guys enjoy playing with each other, I mean, I, you know that there are some interpersonal things with that team, and they just want a title, so it can definitely work out. Right, and even the Warriors, like every team has interpersonal issues, but uh, you know, it's just they they were touted as the exception to the rule in that sense. Like every other, like they were the team that liked each other. You know, like they were the fun team that got along and it was a healthy workplace and even they have issues mm-hmm. I, I was thinking about this when i was rereading your piece would it be possible to start a beef between jimmy butler and russell westbrook about who is the bigger taylor swift fan uh yeah i think i think jimmy's got that one locked up might be a little bit of homer really <laughs> i i feel like that is something that should become a thing is like which nba player is the biggest fan of taylor swift well i think it's going to be whoever whoever she gets on stage first Cause that's coming, right? Like she's got a like she got Kobe on there, and Co- I don't think Kobe's ever said he's a Taylor Swift fan. I might be wrong, but you know, I think I think the, either of the two they got to be the next NBA player in there. Yeah, I, I guess in some ways to me that is more who Taylor Swift is a bigger fan of. But you could say that they're both they, if they were both theoretically pushing for it, that would be a way of kind of breaking the tie. But yeah, and, and one of the great things for me about the way that the league is going is that I think players are becoming more and more comfortable showing those parts of themselves. Like, there's, they can just, you know, whatever they're interested in, you can think about this with Damian Lillard, you can think about this with pretty much anybody. I mean, even, you know, Steph Curry and, and what he's done with both as a father and just with his passion for golf and things like that, that players, I think they're, they're willing to do that. And for the most part, they've gotten positive responses for it. Yeah, I think it's a lot of fun. I think players like to, I mean, I think fans like to see a human side of players. And I think a lot of pieces kind of go like more into, you know, the origin story and, you know, tough bring, upbringing and all like all the cliche stuff that you hear about a lot of NBA players. But, you know, they have personalities outside of what drives them, right? And, you know, it's they have, they have social media now, so they don't really need us to be an intermediary. I think that probably makes them a lot more comfortable saying that they actually like things because, as we all know, when players like anything that isn't related to basketball, they can get a lot of backlash, especially if they're not playing well. Yeah, they, they certainly can. And I think that the, there was also, you can think about somebody like, like, for example, Michael Jordan, who kind of didn't take stances on a lot of things famously, that... I think some of them understand that in certain ways they could be limiting their audience, but it also, it kind of deepens the support just in terms of your fans or bigger fans, and you can be a, kind of a fan of the person and a fan of the athlete separately or together. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, especially especially now that they have more person like more of an outside personality and they're on Twitter and Instagram, like there's plenty of people, like I have friends who don't watch basketball but they love Joakim Noah or Joakim Noah. And, you know, like that's, that's increasingly becoming a thing. And I also think that, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like diversity in Hollywood where like it's happening now because it's profitable. I think there is like more of an economic motive to, to take stances and be more progressive or wh- wherever your political values lie. Like I think because of the internet, you can zone in on, on a base as well, like way more easily. And I think, uh, there's certain ways that society is moving too. Like there is, uh, there's less of, I think there's much less of a prof- profit consideration than there was in the '90s when Michael was playing. 
Yeah, I agree with that. And it's also amazing to me that we've seen a little bit of a shift even towards encouraging athletes to be involved in social media. The one that I think about with that is Clay Thompson, who I, I don't have it definitively, but it feels like there was movement from somebody in his professional world encouraging him to have a Twitter account. Uh, and that is crazy because you think about, you know, where athletes have gone that, you know, is kind of, you know, running everything through an intermediary. And now you have, whether it be the, the doing things with Instagram or with Vine and just building, kind of building a, a, a support of a fan structure for themselves that can be, you know, like for certain guys, they try to have everything feed together. But then for other people, I mean, you think about all the different projects that LeBron has involved himself in, himself in over the last couple of years that, you can be, you know, if for the people who connect him with something like Survivor's Remorse and things like that, you can connect in, in that way too, which I, it's crazy for me, especially with somebody like LeBron, who's an all-timer as an athlete, to kind of think about that. For me, it's kind of like the people who know Arnold Palmer because of the drink that's named after him. Right, and I think you need that these days to really be that otherworldly superstar. Like, Steph Curry was just a really great NBA basketball player until him and his wife made a video that, you know, it, it riffed on a Drake song, and then, you know, then it was megastardom with Riley Curry. Like, you know, things things explode like that. Like, Damien Lillard, for example, is just way bigger star than he should be because he's got Four Bar Friday, and he's magnetic, and he's got he's got a personality, you know? Like, that stuff matters way more than it ever has. It's, so I can totally see why, yeah. like, somebody in Clay's camp would think it was beneficial to him to, to start doing that, even if that's not necessarily the way he leans. Yeah, I, I think that one of the kind of the challenges for athletes is, or for us even thinking about that is that basketball, especially if you want to talk about it as basketball, Twitter or basketball, just as a world, it, it's a lot narrower than the pop culture that it exists as a small part of. And that is something that basketball in particular to me has, it taps into certain components of it, but there's that players have kind of been, and I don't want to say isolated. It's just the way that the sport is. I mean, the NBA is, the I, I think it's still probably the third largest professional sports league in in the United States. I think it's probably rod that in North America in the larger sense, and that it can you know there are guys that can be big. Steph Curry's a great example of that of somebody who, you know, he was big in in our world, but he wasn't really known outside of that. And then when you start hearing like for me, you start hearing my parents bring him up or things like that, you know, <laughs> realizing that there's so much beyond that which can be not only just a, a source of, you know, support and things like that, but also a source of income. Right, absolutely. Like they can there's there's a whole new there's a whole new market for them to tap. And I think I think that's because the NBA uh it skews young in its fans. Like I think I think that has a huge huge impact, especially in terms of social media of course. And when like like I have an I'll give you an example, I guess. Like I, I I'm in a group chat with my friends and like one of them watches sports, like, she watches soccer, and she'll pay attention to everything else, kinda. And the way I, uh, they were kind of, I was trying to explain my finals allegiances, and I was saying I was having trouble, and I knew I could explain it to them this way, just by being like, okay, well, LeBron's, like, great, and, like, I want him to win here, because, and just, like, everyone will shut up. And then I knew I could just, like, the next thing I could just say is, like, but Steph is bae. And then right <laughs> after, they're like, yep, 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 yep. Like they just understood what that meant right away because like there's a there's an understanding of Steph Curry outside of who he is as a basketball player like outside of being the best three point shooter who is like and it's interesting to see those those different brands I guess mingle together like when you hear phrases like baby faced assassin <laughs> stuff like that or like 
you know, just him and his daughter, like that's just a totally different market. And it's it's insane how the way that it's happening. It is. And as somebody who's been around it the whole time, what makes Steph a really cool test case for this is that to me, he hasn't really changed as a as a person. You know, the way that I've dealt with him has basically been the same. He was polished with the media and honest on day one. I don't feel a difference from him at all, even though he's a much bigger star now. And I've been very impressed with how he has been able to turn what he, you know, he's very, he's very socially savvy, but a lot of guys who are socially savvy don't become very popular because they don't make a lot of waves. And what he has been able to do is take that part of him, which is always true and has always been a part of that, and make it accessible because there are other parts of it, but his family and the way that he relates them that people can connect with. And there's another theory with him that I think is completely true, which is that it's easier for the average person to connect with him because he doesn't look like actually LeBron is probably a great example of that. Like when you see LeBron James in person, he stands out. He is, he, I call him the freak among freaks. Like that is what he is. I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in an exclusively positive way. But when you see him, you go, okay, somebody who's that big and that strong and is also one of the fastest guys in the league. I can understand that. But somebody who's pretty thin and who, you know, came from, went to a small school while he has a great, great bloodline, that people can connect with that in a very different way that I think fits into the whole Steph mythos. I think that's a really great point. Like, uh, and, you know, I think we've known that for a while. Like, there are athletes who are more relatable because they look a certain way or they're smaller or, you know, they're whiter. And uh, what you're, like... It's really interesting because uh, me and me and Ethan were me and Ethan showed Strauss your uh, your Warriors colleague. We were talking about this earlier, and while it makes him more marketable, his argument, which I'm gonna steal right now, is that uh, he, uh, he it might underrate him as a player. It does. Ethan's right. Uh, it, what it makes him it helps make him accessible, but and it gets into that whole does the most with the least thing, which I personally hate. It's really stupid. You know, player gets what he gets out of it, though it is relevant when you think about somebody's ceiling. But yeah, there are he is underrated in that way, uh, just are underrated as an athlete in a way that. But at the same time, somebody who is so overwhelmingly powerful can be underrated as well. I think of Shaq for that. You know, Shaq was somebody who was inaccessible for basically everybody because there are very few human beings that have ever lived that have his physical ability. But at the same time, people knocked him all the time, even though he was could have won MVPs basically every year from that for that long stretch because he could have gotten more out of it. Hmm. Yeah, I think that may have been true at the time, but at the same time, like when I think about the image that endures of Shaq, it's like this guy who was so dominant that front courts were like they were changing the way they signed players. And you think about the finals averages and stuff. I think like I think because I think because of how dominant Shaq looked, like there is an enduring image of him as an all-time great. And I think it may have hurt him at the time, but I don't know that it hurts him now. That that's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah, it is true that a lot of those, the especially the free throw shooting, that was such a big part of the his kind of kind of what people talked about then. While people still remember that, it's not like on line one or line two of the Shaq story. It's just buried in there behind the Shaq Kobe thing and the titles mm-hmm. and everything else. 
And yeah, I, that that is it will be interesting to see how that happens with Curry because now with an MVP and a title in the same year, he's obviously not in that class, but he is a part of a larger conversation. And I mean, if you want to talk about it in the greatest shooters ever context or in other things, that whether it's fair or not, he wouldn't have been in without a title. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think he's also. A really interesting MVP in that he's kind of like the Derrick Rose MVP, although way, way, way more deserving, like totally deserved that MVP, unlike Derrick Rose. But he, he's kind of, he was kind of the, the way I see it is like he was the situational best player this year. I think that's the way a lot of people saw it. Like LeBron is now starting to go half speed in the, in the regular season and Durant was out. So that elevated Curry. And at the same time, we've also got this problem where if Curry is the best player in the NBA right now, is he the best, like, he's not necessarily the best next season because Durant could be, like, A, Durant could be healthy, and B, we've, we have this unique situation where we've got a best player in waiting, essentially, in Anthony Davis. So I think it puts Steph in a really weird place in, ter- in, in the way that people think of him as a basketball player. I've supported for a long time, it's one of those things that I harp on, that the league should give out most outstanding player and most valuable player because they're very different concepts, but... Curry is somebody who is challenging in both of them. There are certain players who are more one than the other. I think, like last year, Anthony Davis, I think there was a good argument that he was more outstanding than valuable just because, you know, the team did well, but they were they fought to get in the playoffs, though they had a lot of injuries. And, like, to me, LeBron has towed both in his career, but right now I think he, especially when the other guys are hurt, like in the finals, he was most valuable. I think he should have won MVP of the finals because he was that team. And I wish they separated them because they're, in basketball in particular, because it is an individually dominated sport, those are different things and both should be celebrated as for their own greatness. Yeah, I mean, if you're looking at it in terms of players deserving to get awards, which is a better way to look at it, I totally agree agree with you, but for selfish reasons... I really like the way the MVP debate rolls out just because everyone has a different definition. I think it makes it more fun. I think it increases it, it increases debate and the way that people argue about it. I think it it's, I don't know, I think it says a lot about the way that we think about sports at times. Like because it, it's such a vague award, like Derrick Rose got this undeserving MVP, but it was also like this great picture of what NBA fans were thinking at the time and we were in this like we're in this place that's like post-recession or in a recession and you've got this guy who is small and you've got, and he's, he's put on this image of I'm humble. I, but I'm also ruthless and it's kind of, and he's crafty and you contrast it to LeBron who, you know, it was like the most garish season he's ever had. He did the decision and he had the party and like, I don't, I don't think that people like to see extravagant sorts of extravagant amounts of wealth in uh, obviously when the country's in recession from from athletes. Like, I think that type of stuff like plays a huge part, and I, I'm really interested because the MVP is such a vague award in how like the MVP informs the way that we're thinking at a certain moment. So I think a lot of people got swept in that. Anyway, that was just like I think I went totally like off base there, but you know. But that also fits in with the idea, I think part of the reason that that people like us and and even the larger group are so fascinated with it with 
basketball is that it is also the singular award for it. So that's what leads to people having different interpretations is that if you only have one award that is supposed to encapsulate the individual in its top form, then that lends itself to thinking about, to me, to thinking about the MVP as things other than the most valuable player, because what you kind of want, and I think Bill Simmons has written about this well, you do have that pressure in your mind, and I'm thankful I'm not a voter, though it would be fun, but you have this pressure to have it be the person who is the encapsulation of at least that regular season, because it's a regular season award, and there isn't anything else. So as much as people like me want to make it a more rigid thing and say, hey, well, if you replaced X with a league average player at his position or replaced Y with league average player, they would be better, they would be worse. You do have that pressure to say, well, when we look back on this season, when we look back on these players' careers, because MVP awards do matter in that kind of a way, this is the player that represents it. And when there isn't an alternative, I can't knock the people who choose to interpret it that way. Yeah. I, I think about the other way that that gets, gets me mad is thinking about somebody like Chris Paul, who probably should have an MVP but doesn't, and that because of all the idea of the other things that go into the award, like you could, if you wanted to, to kind of play this play the string out, that if Nash hadn't won the award that should have gone to Kobe, then Kobe wouldn't have had to get his Lifetime Achievement Award that should have gone to Chris Paul, but... And, and and that stuff, to me, I feel like that stuff shouldn't matter in a sense because, you know, I'm one of those, I'm just a pure pragmatist and so, you know, it's just an award. Those guys are all Hall of Famers, but it does affect their legacy and it does affect the way that they are perceived in a, in a more casual sense. You know, like, I, I think that basketball fans in general will not change their opinion of CP3 because he never won an MVP, but it does change things let's say like we were talking about it with Shaq 20 years from now that you can't point to that especially if he never makes even a conference finals uh, if his teams never make a conference finals well no I think I think I think you're right um and I think awards in general should always try to you know reflect the truth and just like you know that's just like a selfish inclination of mine where I like to see what what the award means in the larger sense of like what are we thinking as a league because that's what the award often comes to encapsulate like I think like Stephen, Stephen Curry is a perfect example of what we were thinking at, um, this this past season. But no, you're, you're right though. I mean, it's a sport, and it's uh, it's supposed to be, you know, awards are supposed to be based on merit. And you know, if it, there's a problem, with, we can fix it. And he actually just got me thinking. Like at the same time, well, if Dwight Howard wins that MVP, which I think he probably should have, that's not exciting to me at all. Like I I I don't care. Like I think they were ranked fourth that year they didn't really go very far in the playoffs the magic i mean and um but the, like that's that's not an exciting story but at the same time imagine if lebron wins right like that that kind of fulfills my selfish desire too because that's like you know everyone everyone's cheering against the villain and he's still like despite everyone wanting him to lose he still wins right like that what bigger endorsement of his dominance could there ever be and right. it it also totally would have changed. It would have reinforced, though it was already so strong, the dynamics. Assuming that wouldn't have changed how the finals turned out that year, that it would have even built that narrative even stronger about Miami. Oh, they're the new power. They have the MVP. They have the guy who has you know who's won the won the last mm -hmm. couple MVPs in in that Me contest. In pocket. Yeah, I think that it would have it would have made the Mavs maybe a more enduring story, even though LeBron was already LeBron and. 
that was already a big finals. But I think about that finals as, in terms of the legacy that it totally changes the way that I, the way that I kind of think about the Heat and LeBron's time there. Because while they did really well, and of course they made the finals, they made the finals four years in a row. They won two championships. Losing to the Spurs in the way that they did, I think if you had done that coming off a three-peat as opposed to coming off of back-to-backs, that changes, not, I don't think it changes what his decision and the redecision and everything like that, but it makes that whole tenure seem, I think, kind of more like a mirage in a sense. You know, it's like this really amazing winning stretch in a way that two and four just doesn't do for me. Hmm. That's true. And, I mean, you know, if you, you say the record out loud, I mean, like, you know why, right? Like, they went 2-2, two and two, that's, you know, we know that's great, but in the mind of an NBA fan, like, of a casual NBA fan, it's, you know, he had he had the second-best player in the league by his side and, you know, still couldn't get it done all, all, all four times, and Kobe would have never, like, and that stuff doesn't matter. Like, it, it you know, it's, it's, it's a fun debate. Well, it's not even that fun, but, like, it, and it doesn't matter. But, you know, at the same time, if he does win in Dallas, it doesn't set him up for 2012. Yeah, that's true. Because I think that was one of the most incredible things. Like, that run and just what LeBron went through, the trajectory of his career in those past two years, like, those, like that was, like, the most amazing thing that I think I've seen as a sports fan. Yeah, his arc totally changes because he never gets that kind of pseudo-underdog stage that he got where he hadn't won the title, he didn't win the MVP, and... If you want to call redemption, you can call redemption. But you're right that he never gets that if he wins. And also, that I, I there is a point where if they win it right away, that you go, oh well, as soon as he, you know, as soon as he went with Dwayne Wade, then he started winning championships, so he couldn't right. do it by himself. Mm-hmm. And well, and while you're gonna now, it's almost I would say it's pretty close to definite that he will, his teams will lose more finals than they win in his active career, which I don't consider a detriment in the slightest, but other people will, you it does totally change that if they win their first year because then then it becomes you know, then let's say they win the other let's say they win the other two and lose the other one. Then it's, you know, he wins three out of four there. That changes what what the optics are when he goes back to Cleveland. It changes his legacy too because it it uh, it now it's it's more acceptable to say that, you know, he was he was the key part of it but and he was and he he can get the the quote unquote credit for it even though it was of course a team effort. Right, and I think it would have like, I think winning those three also would have put him more in a. The Michael comparisons would be even more prominent than they are now, and in fact, like I think there would be some people saying that. Well, there are already some people saying that he's better, but I think it would be more of a prominent discussion just because. When he went to Miami, he was the same age that Michael was when he first won a championship, and then he would have three peated, and it kind of would have added to like this coincidental legend, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point, and it also would have, yeah, would have opened it would have opened the door for that, and also one of the challenges with Miami, and I talked about this a little bit with Kevin Pelton, and he talked about it really well with Nate Duncan, is that there wasn't that at least in the regular season, quintessential Miami Heat team. You know, there was never that group that put it together that had a run like the Bulls had in their in their in their later years especially that people can sit back on and go, you know, like that was the team that just wrecked everyone. They did do that, you know, they had it, but they just never put it together for a whole season, whether that be because they didn't care to or because they just had some bad luck earlier in the run. 
Well, I think you could you could maybe argue that the twenty seven game win streak would mm-hmm. uh would apply there. But yeah, I know I think I think for for the large part you're right, especially if you watch them in the finals, they always or not not even just the finals, like throughout the playoffs they didn't have those uh totally dominant playoff runs. Well yeah, like they, they, there was they always went something seven wrong, with like, the Pacers. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, like I, there was always some injury or like LeBron would have to just, you know, come out of the ashes and do something incredible or like and, you know, even like when they won against the Spurs, Game Six was, you know, it was a lot of things, and it was LeBron. And but you know, what if Ray, Ray Allen misses that three? Like they didn't, never won a championship so definitively that, you know, like they were a clear cut legendary team or like they were clear cut like one of the best teams that we've seen, like the way the Warriors did this past year. Yeah, and some of that is for the Warriors can be as much as I don't like to say this it can be attributed to their legacy that they never faced a great team in the playoffs whereas Miami even in the years they got knocked out they got knocked out by good teams but like we were talking about the definitive Miami team like for me you can make the argument that 2012 2013 they I think they only lost four games in the second half of that regular season but then I believe that was the year they went seven against the Pacers. So, you know, the, the, the Pacers, there was a game in that run. or was That the, that might have been the year they went six. But either way, you know, that there wasn't a team that was doing, like, what the Moses Malone Sixers did or anything like that or the, or the Shaq Kobe Lakers that one year where I think they only lost one or two games. But I, I, I kind of, for myself, as somebody who covered the league then, I'm, I'm thankful that I can, I don't have to take anybody else's filter on it. And the, the way I think of them is that that was a team that had that gear, but what makes them special for me is that they never did it. And I like that they, in some ways for me, selfishly, it's kind of like the the forgotten gem. I was I was thinking about this the other day. I don't remember what, what brought it up, but, you know, like, I think if you put that 2012-2013 team in a seven-game series against the 72-win Bulls team, just structurally, the Bulls team probably wins, but they keep it close because that was an amazing team, but they didn't, they weren't overtly dominant, so they're they're kind of a diamond in the rough in that sense, despite having the most famous player in the world. Yeah, I like I like I, I like the way you put that and just having like that card up your sleeve, just selfishly, like, yeah, this is this is my team and not kind of be a hipster about it. <laughs> I, I don't like thinking about myself that way, but yeah, you're, you're <laughs> probably right. But yeah, one of the one of the things you brought up the Warriors that because I'm so close to it that I like to ask other people is how do you perceive last year's team? Um, well, I think they were kind of the nail in the coffin for uh, a lot of people who thought that a certain, you know, a, a traditionalist era of basketball could still survive. Like, that's the way I see them. I just, and I, I see them as totally new age. And I think just the fact that they're in San Francisco, like Silicon Valley, all that stuff, like it totally plays into it. Like, yeah, I just, I just see them as a very revolutionary team. And I see them as a team that subverted a lot of the tropes that people like to have about sports. Like they, they played less minutes and they didn't really, they didn't really succumb to this idea that an individual has to come out of the either and win, even though like, like the thing that really sticks out to me about the Warriors is that they have Stephen Curry who can shoot from anywhere on the floor, but the enduring image of that team is not an individual scoring, you know? But that team, despite having Curry, is still about the team. It is. And I also, for me, it was satisfying to see that a team that, like, of course, you can, they can take away the idea that, you know, a jump shooting team can't win the championship. You can argue that that had been done years before by a couple other teams. But 
what was what I liked about it was it kind of while they were unconventional in a lot of ways, they also confirmed things that I felt have been, are more true in the NBA. Like they were the best defensive team in the league, and they were, and the the aggregate stats like overall season wide defensive efficiency underrated them because they didn't play their starters so much because they didn't have to, and they so they built this. Awesome, entertaining offense that Mark Jackson never wanted to do, never did, on top of a defensive foundation. So they were, and on the foundation of something that uh, I, I personally, my, my personal basketball ethic is that passing and being unselfish is really important. I loved watching the Spurs. I enjoy watching this Warriors team. And so they made a lot of that stuff, not only did they, did they make it, make something that was already accessible, successful, but they still were traditionally strong in a way that didn't hurt their watchability and actually enhanced them as a historical team. <laughs> yeah, they're definitely like they were. They were the prototypical basketball Twitter team. Like it, they confirmed all of our ideas about basketball that we were holding and arguing about, and. Uh, you, you saying that like it, it gets me thinking, and the thing that the Warriors did is that they made they made all of those things the new normal. Yeah. Like every none nothing like I guess I guess like going into this season, the way I see it is like when when I think about this season as opposed to last season, I don't think of the terms new age or revolutionary or. When I think about small ball, I don't think of it as small ball anymore. I think of it as basketball. Mm-hmm. Like you have, you have the Raptors signing Damari Carroll and then trying to sell to Wes Matthews that you'll play him as a four, and that sounds totally normal. And you're thinking maybe that should be like the way, like the way that he plays pretty regularly for them. And that's just like it. The Warriors winning the championship, I think, normalized so many of the techniques that a lot of the teams that we would have thought as revolutionary were doing for a while. And now you see teams that are trying to imitate the Warriors as well. Like you got Frank Vogel moving, Paul, like, and it, it, albeit it is like partially out of necessity, but you've got Paul George moving from the two to the four. Like you have all of this, all these changes happening, all these other teams who wouldn't catch up are now playing catch up because they have to. And also, it it all ties together in the sense that, for me, I think it's going to make the league substantially more watchable because generally big men, while there are obviously skilled big men in the league, many of them in all different facets, generally threes and twos are more create a, a more engaging game than fours do. And so you get that. But I also think that we're going to see a lot of imitators that don't appreciate how hard it is to duplicate what the Warriors did because... They were able to play small ball, but they were still able to protect the rim, and they did it with players that were so skilled offensively and defensively that they weren't making the trade-offs that a lot of teams that go small do. They defended well when they played Draymond at center and Harrison at the four, and there are are reasons for that. But when teams try to do that, and Paul George is an exception because Paul George is a freak athlete too, but... Mm -hmm. There will be teams that use that as a justification and fail spectacularly, which I'm completely fine with because teams will always fail spectacularly. But I think that we will gain an appreciation 
for this team in time because I feel that there won't be many teams that can succeed in exactly the same way, though there will be many teams that try. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's going to be like the Spurs where everyone's like, yeah, let's be like the Spurs. And then the next guy's like, okay, so what's step one? And, you know, and, and while we talk about this, I don't mean to say that, you know, there is only one way to play basketball and the Warriors prove that there's only one way to play basketball. It's just that there are ideas that were permeating in the NBA and that, you know, that had won championships and people not wanting to acknowledge it that are now um, validated along with a lot of other ways of playing. Like, for like, there's Memphis, like Memphis is always in it. And they're pretty much the opposite of uh, of everyone else. So yeah, it makes it not as you said. It makes it non niche. It's not niche anymore, which is which is incredibly important. But I I think that in this kind of hysteria, if you want to call it that, about following what the Warriors have done, I still think that a great like Shaq like big man should one should one exist would dominate the league not as well as before because the defensive rules and certain other things, just the schemes are different now. But I still think that you can win those ways too. But you need, I think you need better talent that way to win than you did before. And that kind of, that shifting of the reward system makes it, makes the league more engaging because now teams don't have to throw all their eggs in the seven-footer basket because a lot of those seven-footers weren't worth that. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that would apply, let's say, it's 2015 and we've got 2010 Dwight Howard? Huh. Yeah, Dwight, because Dwight, I think that defensively, he might even be more valuable now than he was then, because you're protecting the rim is a very different thing now, and he's really good at those parts too. You know, he's, he's good as a mm-hmm. man-to-man defender, but I think he's better as a paint protector beyond that. So, but his offensive flaws, and this was actually exposed to to a point in their series with the Warriors, is that his lack of not not his dribbling and people say, oh, he doesn't have moves. He has moves. Dwight's big flaw offensively was that he couldn't exploit additional attention. You think about like for me, the the modern example of that is somebody like Powell. When Powell gets extra attention, he kills you because he can pass. Anthony Davis will eventually be able to do that pretty well. Uh, even somebody like Greg Monroe, though he doesn't really get the double teams, and Julio Okafor, if he ever gets the double teams, can pass out of him pretty well. So that part of Dwight, unless he, unless we're also giving him that time to develop in a way that he didn't in that time, I think that he would be a great player, he would be an MVP candidate, he could be the best player on a championship team. But I think that it would be similarly hard to do but I, 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 I think, going back to Dwight, he's another guy whose legacy is hurt by never being a part of a definitive team because he never won a title. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, 2009 to 2011, Dwight was, like, I, I think it's, like, the perfect perfect example of big men being underrated because they're not relatable, which is something we talked about earlier, and just because they're not necessarily exciting. And the stuff that Dwight does, like, outside of the dunks, which you know, they even lose their shine just because he is like six feet, six foot 11. You know, the stuff he does is uh, not exactly, you know, magnetic. What's crazy about that is you're completely right. But Blake Griffin gets all of that attention without the defensive ability. 
And, I mean, yeah, he can handle the ball better and he can pass the ball better, and that's part of it. And he's very telegenic and he's better with the media. But Blake, I, it might also be because he's not a center, you know, that he gets a little bit more freedom yeah. and because he's a little bit smaller. He gets all of the shine and he is, to me, he's not even near the player that Dwight was and his best. Yeah, not even close. And, you know, like, if we do by the end of this podcast, manage to figure out the exact ingredients of magnetism like I'll, I'll be really really impressed but yeah there's definitely things that are hard to explain with that and I think it is like a lot of the stuff that you talked about factors into it like he's funny he does the UCB stuff he's like like he's got this great Twitter and you know as a player though like he's just I'm trying to think about it objectively like as objectively as I can and he's more fun than Dwight he is like even though he is like He's just way more fun than Dwight. Even if you if you took away, if you took away, let, let's say let's reduce it to rookie Blake, who was like still doing, like dribbling across half court and all that stuff, but like to a lesser extent. Like he's just like, the way he dunks is like it just it sounds stupid, but like the way he dunks is more exciting. It is like the, the he way also... he spins and you know it's just like it's. I don't know. Sometimes I guess like a lot of things can just come down to the way somebody moves. It's, I think that's a great point, and also Blake did that in a bigger market in an era that was more conducive to that now with League Pass and with Twitter, and well, he didn't have Vine when he was a rookie, but that that yeah. all fits into Blake Griffin, and the fact that he's also way better with the media, and he gets commercials and things like that, I think it all fits together with him, but... It's it is remarkable now to see how he's been able to maintain his star despite generally not playing that way in the regular season. You know, it was jarring for me and exciting. It was I was thrilled by it that we kind of saw old Blake Griffin in the in the playoffs when in the regular season, you know, you'd see flashes of it, but it felt to me like he was saving himself for the playoffs. Yeah, I'd say so. And I also think the Clippers um I think the Clippers should be running their offense through him more so than through Chris Paul, even though they do run the most efficient offense in the league, but the way they run it with Chris Paul, it it definitely, it burns out by the end, and it's so dependent on him that it's just destined for failure, just because it kind of punishes him for being good. Like, he's so good that he does deserve to run an offense, but at the same time, he's also so good that by the end of the game, no one else is, like, not to say they don't have rhythm, but they just don't have command over the ball. Like, Chris Paul is a notorious control freak and by the like I think it's like this team it just shakes it just starts shaking in its boots when it's in when it's in any type of like crunch time moment because I don't think they're used to having to do do anything without Chris Paul and like then once the ball's out of his hands like things can really really go off the rails and I don't think that's the thing that happens when they run the offense through Blake and it's like I I remember checking I don't have the stats for this right now, but, like, they still ran a really, really good offense when it was just Blake Griffin. Like, in the games that Chris Paul is out, like, they still... Because, like, the thing with Blake is, like, he'll command attention and he'll make the right pass right away. Like, you just get him, get it down to him in the middle of the floor and it's either DJ for an alley-oop or it's, uh, or it's JJ for a three. Like, it's a, it's a well-churned offense with, like, good players in a good, in a good place for, for them, so... You know, I think I, I've thought for a while that's what they should be doing. I don't think it'll ever happen because who takes the ball out of Chris Paul's hands? But, you know, I just I think they would be a much 
more playoff ready team, if not necessarily better in like the plus minus or in like net rating. Well, yeah, they, so I, I looked it up while you were talking. They scored uh, last season, and, and you can make an argument, I think, that they might have been better the year before. They scored 104.4 points per 100 possessions when Blake was on and Chris was off, which is really good. And they're a great example, and Doc would never, ever, ever do it, of a team that I think would benefit a lot from having one of their good players play when the other good, great player sits. Like For me, the prototype for this is Kevin Love playing without LeBron. And hmm. the reason that you do that beyond people say it in terms of, you know, making sure that the lows aren't as low is because a lot of those guys are better when they're a focal point. And so I, I think they understand that, you, you know, only certain guys can be the best player on a great team, but you give them a little taste of that and you get them in the, in that rhythm and you get them in that flow. And you think about that most second units don't really have that guy. And so if you can you get get a focal point for 48 minutes a game as opposed to 32 to 34, I think they're they're all the better for it. And if you structure the minutes in the right way, you can do that while not depleting what you have. I mean, you think about with the Clippers, if the Clippers just swapped around the minutes a little bit, made sure that Blake played when Chris Paul sat, and you could sub those minutes with either Paul Pierce playing the four, so you get some offensive balance and some offensive rhythm, or if you want to play Josh Smith, Josh Smith is a very intuitive passer. You, Chris Paul would beat the bad shot selection out of him. He'd also be playing power forward. So I think that there is a there is a solution within the talent that they now have that they didn't have last year, but I am 100% convinced that Doc will not do it. Oh, yeah, he'll never do it. Never. I, I agree with you with the Cavs, totally, and I think I think the Clippers should be doing it more as well. I think I think uh, pretty much every team with like a one-two punch like that should be doing it. And I really like the idea of Josh Smith just coming into Blake Griffin's role because I think he's a guy that could just come in. He would really just intuit what Blake Griffin does as a passer and as a roller. Yeah, he's he's underrated in that, and and Smith knows the game incredibly well, which it's hard for me to reconcile because his shot selection is so bad, but. When you watch him play, and if you ever talk to him, he gets it. And I, I don't exactly, I've never been able to fully piece together <laughs> why that means he takes so many terrible shots. I think it's because he believes he can make them. But he can, I, I fully believe that he can do that. And it, it would also, to me, make the Clippers a more dangerous team because also what having that established thing, and if you want to talk about it as experimentation or you want to talk however you want to define it, it also makes the team because they're human beings, more comfortable if it happens that one of your best players gets hurt. So if you, you know, so if it happens that, you know, that Blake Griffin, you know, he messes up his knee or whatever, and he's out for, you know, hopefully he's not out for, you know, the year, but maybe he's out for a month. Then you know that you've already had this lineup. They've already done a really good job. Everybody knows what to do and you're not learning anything on the fly. And so that can help. And I mean, you see, with teams that are successful, a lot of times they can suffer through that injury. I mean, going back to the Bulls, Jimmy Butler has more confidence in his ability to create offense in a way that never would have happened if Derrick Rose was still Derrick Rose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's like the, that's like the silver lining, supposedly, to pretty much every injury. Like that's what you hope comes out of it. And like, and I just remembered, like, just thinking about how good of a fit Josh Smith is in that role, like. He used to do that all the time with Horford. Yeah. Is that like he like Horford used to be like he would be like the DeAndre Jordan in this in this role 
right? Like, just throw it up for an alley-oop. Like, they ha- they run that play all the time. And the thing is, like, with the Clippers, it won't even really be a play. It'll just be, like, coming out of the pick and roll. Yeah, and also he'd, he'd be good with them in transition. He, I mean, he's not as athletic as he was in the Atlanta days, but he's still, you know, he can still do it, and he's smart enough that he can pick his spots. I, I think it would work really well, and... There, yeah, and and one of the kind of side effects, if you want to call it that, of having a lot of top-heavy teams in the league, and we do, which I think is a great thing overall, is that I hope that they use the regular season in that sort of a way because they know that, especially Cleveland, that what they do in the regular season isn't that relevant. Yeah, and I think that's like that's what Steve Kerr did. Yeah. But they also didn't need them because they were beating teams by 20, so they could right. pull their guys without sacrificing anything, which is really the right. dream. Like that's, I think that's what Oklahoma City probably wants to do, is you know, that they want to be able to get Durant rest, not because you know, they need to play him X number of minutes, but because they're beating teams by so much that they can. I don't know whether that will happen. I expect that it will when they're healthy, if and when that ever happens. But part of what I'm so excited for for this season is that there is this possibility that we have... I think there are three teams that are really, like, legitimately elite. Like, they can go in different different eras, if you want to call it that. They would be good They would be good a lot more. They're the kind of those teams. But then there's another group, which includes the Clippers and includes the Rockets, that are excellent as well. And that leads to... It, I think it's going to lead to some less fun regular season games because there are about 10 teams, I think, that are almost better than everybody else. But it will also just... I think it'll be fun to see the dynamic with that because in the West, everything matters. Yeah. So, like, the Spurs are your other... Like, your third, yes. right? Yes. Cavs, Cavs, Warriors, and, and, and Spurs. And they all have question marks. They all have flaws. But they're all they all have incredibly high ceilings. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what I like about it absolutely. is they're also all good in different ways. Is, yeah, no, it's like really because I think I think the thing that was scaring a lot of people is that uh, you know with the league shifting that there would somehow be a lack of diversity, which like we're just seeing is that's not the case at all. Yeah, and if you and if you think about Oklahoma City as potentially you know if everything works right for them getting into that mix, they're different than the other three as well. Yeah, I mean they have an. Like, they, they've got, like, the Westbrook dynamic, which is totally different from anybody that we've seen in the finals for a really long time. And if they win, then I think that's, like, I don't know, like, the pendulum shifts back to... Well, actually, like, you know, I, can, I don't know what Billy Donovan's going to do, though. So, like, I have a lot of... I don't feel good about Oklahoma City. I don't either. I, I think, like, I think this is going downhill, and I think, like, it's just spelling Durant leaving. I th- like, I think the worst-case scenario is going to happen to them. Like, I don't think... Like, I think with the health issues, like, even if by the end of the season, Durant and Westbrook and everyone else is in good health, like, they are... They didn't come into, like, a Warriors situation, which... And the Warriors were incredibly lucky with their health, where, like, Steve Kerr could just come in and plug in his new system with, like, a bunch of guys who already know each other. Like, there's a, there's a lot of moving parts, and, like, I don't think Durant has... Has Durant even played with Ennis Cantor? Like, there's a lot of... And just end his character in and of himself. Like, I think this is just spelling into, like, things are not going to go well, and I think he leaves in 2016, and then I think Westbrook leaves. Yeah, I, I agree with you that that... And what, what really shakes me about them is the distinct possibility, and you could argue that it's a guarantee because they traded James Harden, 
that we never see them at their best for that for even for just a playoff run. You know that we we never see that because this is a legitimately special combination of individual basketball players. And for me, a lot of that goes to having Scotty Brooks on the bench, who I don't think worked at all, who worked to maximize what they did, both in terms of scheme and in terms of, we just talked about, you know, playing one star when the other star sits, they would never do that, and then they would mm-hmm. get killed in the bench. And that, I think that Donovan, as somebody whose teams has ripped, have ripped the teams out of my heart, my college's heart for years, I think that he is capable of figuring it out, but one season might probably won't be enough time to do it. And so if we have a, you know, let's say around Valentine's Day, they start to figure it out and they're doing a lot better, but they still get, let's say, the four seed. And, you know, they just, they they get the four seed, they would beat the five, and then they just, they don't clean out the one and the two because that's really hard. You know, that's probably the Warriors and Spurs or the Warriors and Rockets or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's hard. You know, you wouldn't expect that. And so then we sit there and if Durant leaves, which I think is a very reasonable possibility, then we all know how good they were, but we don't have anything to point to because not even like we talked about, you know, that Cle- that Miami never put together that season. They had the win streak and they won two titles. If Oklahoma City, if the best they ever do with this group of players is make the finals once and get whooped by LeBron in the heat, not only is that underachieving, but their resonance long-term is they're more like the Shaq Penny Magic than like what they deserve because they're so much better than that. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I don't even, I don't think I have anything to add there. Like, and it's sad. So how do you find it? Like it is, and so like, how do you see the Clippers fitting into the West power dynamic? Like, do you th- like to me what my my interpretation, and I, I I hope that you disagree with me on this, is that they're very good and they're entertaining, but I find it hard to expect them to beat the other teams that are around them. Like I don't expect them to make the finals, but I think they're going to be a very good team. Right, and I, I think that's like the characterization, a characterization you could give pretty much any team in the West. The way I see them, like I have them ranked, I think fourth. Like I think they'll go fourth. I think it'll be Golden State, San Antonio, Houston, L.A. And I think, I think, uh, I think Houston is not a better team, but I just think they'll win more games. And 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 I think I have a. Uh, have OKC after them, and I just, I kind of see them, I kind of see, the way I see the West is like, and maybe this underrates San Antonio, I think they, I don't, I don't know that, like, it sounds like it's the best move of the offseason, but I don't know that Marcus Aldridge really moves the needle for them in a way that would make a difference against Golden State. I kind of see it as Golden State and everyone else. Interesting. I'd probably rank LA and San Antonio in the same place, and then everyone else outside of New Orleans and Utah, like I kind of have as the bottom of the West, and everyone else is kind of like, hey, if the matchup breaks rights, and 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 in a sense, like I'd say, San Antonio and LAC are also those teams where it's like, will the matchup break right? Yeah, I, I think what the what I'm having having trouble with putting into words is also the possibility with the Spurs and the Clippers that they have age related regression in a way that 
makes them a lot worse. You know, if if Chris Paul loses half a step and if Tony Parker loses another half a step, those teams are very close to dead in the water in terms of title contender. Yeah, I mean, I think if Tony is anything like he was in the playoffs, like, that's it. Yeah, I, 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 like, I don't care they, like, what Marcus Aldridge brings after they're that. They're like, going to Like, so I think much. the key is Tony for them. Yeah, I, I think that you, you brought up a good point with LaMarcus, that he's a good player, but he you need everything else to work for him to be to be uh, like that huge part of it. And he's a great player. I'm not I'm not knocking it. That Portland team last year was awesome when they were healthy. But if that and I, and there wasn't a point guard on the market. It's not like, oh, they should have gotten this player instead of LaMarcus Aldridge. You have to you're at the mercy of the availability at the time. But the whole thing, the whole I don't want to call it a house of cards because it's way better built than that, but the whole structure needs somebody who can be the engine for the offense. And while I am high on Patty Mills and I'm somewhat high, not super high on Kyle Anderson, neither of them is probably the guy yet. And this year, when you look, think about their overall roster in terms of the aging curve, each year for them right now, each year is a better chance than the next year because Tim Duncan's getting older. At some point, Tim Duncan's not going to be Tim Duncan anymore. It might be might be 30 years from now, but it's each year it becomes more likely. And LaMarcus is on the wrong side of it as well. So if it doesn't work this year, then it starts to get dicey. Yeah, which is... That, that's the problem. Like, the way I saw this signing earlier was that, like, and I think a lot of people saw it that way, was, like, this might be a bit of a short-term blip in terms of fit, but it'll be good in the long term. Then I thought about it, and it's like, well, if LaMarcus fits next year, then he'll probably just fill the gap that was left by however much Tim regresses and however much Tony regresses. Like, especially Tim, like, they basically... I don't think fit is going to necessarily be a problem for them just because, like, I do just, like, I'll fly blind with Pop and just say, yeah, he'll find a way to run a really efficient offense. But, like, I think he's just going to fill the holes that the other guys leave. And they need to imp- – like, that's that's a, that's a problem in the West. Like, they need to go from great to greater. And, like, that's just – like, that's a really hard thing to do, even if you do get the best player in free agency. Like, they had the best free, free agency of any other team. But, you know, that's just, like, that's the way the West works. And you you might only you might even need to go from great to greater to even make it out of the first round. Yeah, it's it's insane. Do you do you support going in another abstract direction? Do you support going to a top sixteen, just not doing conferences for the playoffs? Oh yeah, yeah yeah. That's like yeah, no question. Like I don't want to I don't want to watch the Brooklyn Nets. I don't care if the Boston Celtics get in. And the thing is, like, it helps the East, too. Like, the reason these West powers are able to consolidate power is because they spend so much time in the lottery that they end up getting Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook, you know? Yeah, and you get – you get people have talked about it in, in a way that is intelligent about, that you know, that even just the small difference between making the playoffs and not making the playoffs in terms of draft pick. But the bigger thing for me is that it facilitates when the wheels come off that you let them go all the way off. And the most extreme example, of yeah. course, is the, is the Spurs with Duncan. But in the West, if you... Like, I, I think the best example of this, though they didn't do the second part of it, is Oklahoma City. You know, Oklahoma City was a really good... They were a very good team last year. And even though they were missing Durant for so much of the time, and they didn't make it in. And so... But if you're in the East, and you're the Nets, and you're the Celtics last year... 
you feel that you kind of owe it to yourselves and to your fans to try for the playoffs because it's not that far off. You know, you, well, you, it's, not, yeah. it's not even that noble. Like, there's just like huge profit mo- motive for trying to make the playoffs. Sure, especially in the East, where the other teams are shaky enough that you can actually believe that you can win your yeah. first round series. Yeah, that's true. It, it's I mean, it's frustrating. And for for me as as a Californian, it gets frustrating also because you hear all the talk about travel, and then you remember that the Western Conference teams travel almost as much, and it's almost entirely an Eastern Conference related issue. Because you you the the Western Conference goes across three different time zones and a a, lot, a large geographic swath of the country, but the East is all in this little corner, and so anytime you hear about travel, it's just them. Okay, let let's just. There are four teams in California. Let's yeah. just remember that. And I think, yeah, no, I think I think you're absolutely right. Like, I just feel I feel horrible for a team like Memphis, you know, that is actually like they should be in the East. And like, I think it, like it's been documented many times. Like, they have to travel more than anybody else, and it's just, you know, it's just, I think it's a huge problem. Yeah, and the and the other team I feel with for lots and lots of reasons, but is Portland, because not only for Portland do they not have a geographic rival because the Sonics went to Oklahoma City for reasons that will be stupid forever, but they have to travel to get anywhere, too. And so you have it on the extremes, and when you're... What also frustrates me is the people who are most inconvenienced by that top 16 switch are media members and executives and people like that, you know, or league executives or whoever, people who have to travel to both things. I don't care if those people are inconvenienced. You know, like, I don't care if it's hard for media members to get from, if, if a series happens to be, worse comes to worse, happens to be Toronto against yeah. the Clippers. You know, if, mm-hmm. that, if that series happens in the first round, yeah, that's unfortunate from a travel circumstance. The teams are on I private care about jets. The players, though. Yeah, they're fine. I don't think they care. You know, as long as you give enough breaks during during the time, and they should they should be doing that anyway. You know, you have enough time, and so as long as you do that, they're fine. I, I don't think you worry about it at all. The quality of play is not going to diminish. You'll just have some cranky media members who have to who have to deal with longer flights that might be more expensive. I don't care. Oh no, I was actually saying that uh, I do care about the players. I think it will but, make a difference. Oh, you see, I I think with with their with the way that they travel now, I don't think it'll make a huge difference for them. Oh, I'm just I'm just trying to recall this. Like, uh, I think it was Tom Tom Haberstroh on ESPN that wrote this article, and just basically the even if they are on these private planes and like they've, you know, it's way different than it was back when they were taking chartered planes and whatnot, and back in my day, and blah blah blah. It's just there's still a huge uh, huge downside to having to spend so much time in the air. That's true. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder how that wonder how that would set. But I, I guess for me that you can you can off balance you can balance that a little bit by just putting in a little bit more rest. And f- yeah, while while like that I is think- a consideration, I think that the competitive balance issue of getting the best sixteen teams in to me trumps the idea of having you know of of guys being a little bit you know having having some rest issues. And well, they are both important, and an ideal system would would fix all of those problems. If I had to choose between a flaw. I would choose the flaw of sometimes the players not being as rested as they should be. Yeah, 100%. Like, I... It's just, like, it's a huge problem. Like, I'm just, like, I decided to look at the standings again right now from last year, and wait, it would have been Milwaukee, Boston, and Oklahoma would have gotten in. I might be doing this wrong at the moment. And, like, that's just, like, that's way more fun. 
And that makes the league a lot more money. It's way more marketable to have Oklahoma in there than to have Brooklyn in there, who people just openly did not want to see playing any more basketball. And, like, you know, you had media members complaining about it. And, like, I think... I also, like, I don't want to take it lightly that, like, they're going to be less well-rested because of oh, how big of a problem that injuries have become. Like, I think, the, I think the move is to, like, you get the top 16 in, and then you, like, here's where I think you run into problems just because of the way that TV schedules work. Like, you would have to find a workable way to give, say, like, Toronto and L.A. have to play each other. You have to find a way to give them more rest than, say, I don't know, Memphis and Chicago having to play each other. I think I think you could probably make it work. What you might need to do is for them is shorten the amount of time. So what you might do is you would have their time in a same city be tighter. So maybe they only have one off day, and maybe sometimes you give the other people two off days in the same oh, city. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and in terms of the how it would have gone last year, it, it, the Nets would have been out and the Thunder would have been in. But there's a huge counterfactual argument there that Phoenix, if it would have been reasonably possible for them to get in because they finished one game behind Boston that they would have pushed and gotten in. You know, so I, I think it, if you're talking realistically, yeah. I think it would have been Phoenix and Oklahoma City in and Brooklyn and one of Milwaukee mm. and Boston out. And and so I think and I think yeah, that maybe, is a far better playoffs. And then and also you Utah get Utah pushes for it, right? Yeah, maybe. You, yeah, Utah would have been Utah would have been um, if you go by that by that they're, system, they're, they would have been out by two games. So yeah, they they definitely would have could have pushed it a little bit more and done that. And also, depending on how you structure a top sixteen, I've been on the record for years that I think I like the idea of the top teams being able to choose their opponents. Either way, you're whether you support that or not, the, the you would have a greater overall balance early and late because you would have you you wouldn't have as much that's at the mercy of the scheduling because you just have more teams in the pool so that means there's a the, the random chance I think would get diluted a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you have more te- more uh, fans uh tuning in for the second round. I I don't think I don't think the casual fan tunes in until the Western Conference Finals except for you know like there was Clippers Spurs that everybody was watching. Like there's always an anomaly, but I think you know it gives a better chance of the second round just being through and through way more exciting like it just trickles down to the entire playoffs and like i think so many people would so many more people would watch like there's so many little fixes the league could make or like just like take one step back and take five steps forward that like i don't think they'll ever do yeah i i I agree with you uh one of the ones i i don't know if i've talked about it on the podcast I've, i've wanted to write a piece on it actually probably going too soon um is that I don't understand why they don't just put a game on TV on whatever network on, let's say, like Saturday mornings or, you know, sometime like that where kids are going to watch and you just have it on. And maybe it's a weird time, but and you're not going to get the greatest ratings, but just a way to get new fans. Because what frustrates me most is that the NBA has a great product right now. They have a really great product. And when you have that in any field, the most important thing to do is to get it out there. Because and and what what gets me is I have friends from various walks of my life who are big sports fans and I have people who friends who I've known for years who are big sports fans and they they g chat me they email me they call me and they say hey I don't know why it took me so long to get into this league and to get into this sport and that's frustrating to me because not like not only do they like is is it there. But they have a friend who is a sports writer, and it still doesn't happen. And yeah. so, like, if you have that good a product, it should be hitting people in the face constantly. Well, yeah, and then instead of that, they have 
they have their marquee night on a Sunday, which, like, you know, as a new concussion movie puts it, I think it's a great line. You're going up against an organization that owns a day of the week. Yeah, and, like and, you, and, and, and they're ducking it too, you know, they're, you can counter program to a point, though I wouldn't counter program on Sundays, but. But no one's sitting there on, in front of their TV and watching a sport all day. You can't actually do that. <laughs> Americans can do it, but they can only well, do I mean, it like once for can. a specific sport. You can't, you can do it for like three games. I'm saying, like. Yeah, you're right. They can't do it for five. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Yeah, and, and also, there's so many other other points of it, and the other one that I think about a lot is that networks a lot of times struggle with having any programming on Fridays, and yeah, you would get into issues with, with local news and things like that, but, you know, if you threw a game on, well, the only partner they have is ABC, like, ABC struggles for Friday programming ever since they canceled Full House, so if you just give them a basketball game and you say, hey, we're going to try to fit it in two hours because they could be able to theoretically do that, then... They could, I think they could put it in and, you know, maybe you're not going to get the greatest ratings, but maybe you'll have that group of people that see it on and everything else is a rerun or something. And you get, you know, maybe you get a couple hundred new fans each time. That's enough. Well, they do have the the Friday night special sometimes on ESPN. Sometimes, but I I would love to see it on a network on a single digit. Yeah. Okay. Why not? You know, they're they're You can do things like that. And also with Twitter and social media, I think we're seeing basketball players become more mainstream stars than has been true. Not not for the extreme guys. I mean, Michael Jordan was obviously Michael Jordan, but I think that in today's world, it is a lot easier for Stephen Curry and Wessel Westbrook and players like that, whether, even especially if they're in a smaller market, to become known as themselves. And that gets helped the more accessible your league is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... It may sound like homerism just because, like, we're obviously basketball fans, but as objectively as you can think about something like this, like, I think basketball is by far the funnest sport to watch. Like, I don't think it's particularly close. And it's basketball is a sport that is good on television and is great live. So my yeah. per, my personal favorite sport live is hockey. I think hockey is an amazing yeah, sport live. But even though I can follow the puck and all that kind of stuff – I just don't think it translates as well. There's just a part of it that you can't get from that experience. And basketball, there are two different things, you know, in person and on television. But the experiences are both very good. And so I think that can translate in a way that can that can work. And if they can if they want to experiment with not exclusively, but sometimes tightening up the game a little bit, you know, making some of the breaks more manageable, you know, how they use timeouts, making replay reviews less onerous. I think there's even ways within what they already do to make it even better for casual fans that, you know, maybe you don't do every game that way, but you do a couple that way and see if it works. I don't even think that matters. Um, I, I, I would like to see it happen just because it would make the game funner, but I don't think it even matters that much. Like when you think about the type of delays that football has, like it doesn't even compare. Like, yeah, and football's getting worse too. And baseball's yeah, getting way worse. Like, there's like 10 minutes of action in a football game and people still want to watch it you know it's like it's way more about the way you sell the sport than it is like the actual sport and i just think the nba has so much potential but they're they're penny wise and pound foolish and it's and same goes for the same same goes for the schedule like why are there 82 games a year for this sport it should be a marquee sport it should be like football yeah or at least you know at least closer and I think it would also raise the quality of play because if you had less games, depending on whether you know you would have 
You would have less strategic rest, which I think is a very important thing. You would have less injuries just because the reduction of the random chance. But a factor that people don't talk about, which frustrates me, is depending on how you did the scheduling, the teams would get to practice more. And that helps. You know, teams getting to have that cohesiveness, getting to really work with their backups, getting to try different things out. Because right now you hear of these stretches, you know, when teams go on road trips or whatever, that they go three or four weeks or a month or more than that without practicing. And that would help. And I think you'd see more trades, too. Like, if, if, if there was a guarantee that you could actually acclimate a guy into a system, I think there would be way more trades. In-season trades, yeah. That, that's a really good point. I hadn't yeah. thought about that, but I think you're right. And in-season trades would definitely make would definitely make people more interested in my work, so I have to support it for selfish reasons <laughs> yeah, as well. Absolutely. But yeah, I, I think that... And what's hard about it for me is, like, I, I've, you know, done NBA Utopia, done other things, is, like, I, the reason that I do things like that is because I feel like they can do better, but there's, they're, you have, you, they, as I said before, they have a good product, you know, like, it, I don't get mad when something that isn't good isn't as great as it could be, but I get really mad when something that is great could be better. Yeah, and I think another thing, and I think this goes back to what we were talking about, like, personalities and NBA players, the NBA has such an underrated gift that, we don't talk about enough and that the NBA doesn't really take advantage of enough as it doesn't do with pretty much everything else, which is that we can see the players' faces. Mm-hmm. And they use them. And they use them. can't do the hockey. That plays so much into why these guys have the celebrity that they do and the way that their celebrity is different from other athletes. And they just... If you improve these structural things about the NBA, it would explode, I think. And basketball is a very expressive sport. You can see a lot of you can see a lot of that personality and things things fit together well. And even if they're incongruous, that makes it more interesting. You know, you see the guys who you know maybe they can be more intense on the court and then they're easy going off the court. But most of like the for me the the prototype for that is Magic Johnson. You know, like you saw Magic's personality every single mm-hmm. time he touched the ball. And there was nothing that you could do with that. And the fact that you got to see his smile when he was doing it, when he was ripping a team's heart out, made it so much better. Yeah, it's a great point. And in a lot of ways, the NBA is the, the NBA moves away from that. Like, you, like you can't taunt, you can't talk to referees. And all I think is that the I think the NBA's problem is like it's very endemic of like the way that. I think a lot of, like, it's this is going to be, like, just, like, an analogy out of nowhere, but, like, the way the left works, which is, like, the NBA is so busy apologizing for who it is, for what it is, and trying to appeal to this imaginary fan base that is watching another sport and will never shift over, that it just, like, it ends up making the product so much worse. Like, the fan that, like, the fan that turns on an NBA game and sees a black guy taunting someone and turns a game off is mythical. And the NBA cannot stop trying to market, market to that person. The, and it hasn't been able to stop marketing to that person ever. It is a great point, And to me, the best example of that is when David Stern put in the dress code. He had, yeah. a, he had a situation where there was a perception in certain circumstances, partially racially based, that the league was, the league was, had thugs in it and, you know, had all this stuff. Instead of putting in putting in a dress code and implicitly kind of confirming some of those untrue things, what he should have done is a more full-throated defense saying, we are the NBA, 
we let our players be individuals. These are capable, intelligent, for the most part, people, and we, our sport is, is individuals. It is elite individuals performing in a team concept. And if they want to do, if, and, and we support them in that. And if he does that, yeah, you're right. Like you, you, there would be this small group of people who are vocal, but not really ex existing in the sense of a tangible market that would be theoretically mad about it. But not only that, but it would also, I think it would have built a, a better rapport between the players and, and owners because they would have been treating them like adults and not people that they had to be ashamed of. And if you want to get into all the stuff with the culture and the balance between owners and players, I think that's all there in the dress code. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with what you said 100%. Like, you just... I think the thing with the NBA is, like, they need to just, like, accept what this league is and double down because it's a great league. And and if you do that, too, like, you'll you'll get more fans. And you'll also, like... The type of sports fan that kind of sometimes feels bad about watching sports and has like a funny feeling in their stomach for watching sports, like you'll you'll appeal to that fan too, and that's and again like that's that's a that's the type of fan base that's almost as rare as a mythical fan that like will watch will watch you if you have a dress code, but like it also exists and you make the people who already like you happier. And the other the other point in this that I think fits in really well, and the NBA has gotten a little bit better about it, is it's really not that hard in our league. They could do a poll of even a basketball Twitter, and we're not the end all be all of anything. Of what players are the most entertaining, what teams would be the best to get folks interested in the sport, get people interested in the league. And you wouldn't have seen it take four years for Kevin Durant to be on national TV with any regularity. It wouldn't have taken something beyond this year to have Anthony Davis on national TV regularly. It's an individual sport that, while I understand why they need to cater to a point to big markets, and, you know, the Lakers and the Knicks and those teams need to be involved, you want to make sure that the people that fans will tune in for, not only to national games, but the reasons they might be interested in League Pass, that they are aware. There should not be people who are basketball fans in any shape or size that that cannot tell you why it is amazing to see Anthony Davis play basketball. It should never happen. Yeah, like, it really shouldn't be something you have to explain. And, like, the thing is, like, you can't grow the past. Like, you're just, like, you're, you're bound to fail, fail that way. And I think, like... When you think about things like fan voting, right, like for the All-Star game, or when they let in people who are veterans as opposed to younger players, it's like this is absolutely the wrong way to go in a sport that should, like, in a, in a game that is supposed to be a showcase. and Like, this game is an advertisement for the league. Yeah, and you nailed it at the high end, but it's also true at the low end because the league subsidizes on minimum salary contracts. They subsidize teams to get older guys. And so coaches and yeah. GMs want to do that anyway. You know, the fact that you can pay Mike Miller on the minimum the same amount of money as Anthony Bennett is not a it's it's a good thing in this in some weird esoteric sense, but it squeezes out spots for young guys at the expense of older guys and there are enough old guys already, you know, that's fine. I, I fully support if you if you earned a spot in the league, 
but subsidizing it not only in terms of the cap number but in terms of actual dollars is ludicrous to me yeah <sighs> absolutely I, I don't think that i don't think that's something that'll ever change just because you know the player side on the cba isn't really going to go for that either which is the same reason why the season will never get shorter because the players would actually lose more than the owners would and they're not willing to they're not willing to give that up at least not yet yeah, and, I, and and for the players, like a short-term risk like that, it's it's a long-term risk for them. Their careers aren't that long, whereas like an NBA owner might own his team for a really long time. And even the NBA owners are really risk-averse too. Yeah, and and also owners have the ability to recoup that money, especially the ones who own their own buildings, and that should be more of them, if not all of them, eventually, mm -hmm. because it's smart. If especially if the league plays as many games as they do, you know, if you have if you own your arena, then you can put in concerts, you can do something else. Maybe you won't make as much money. The other dynamic with that that is that generally speaking in the NBA, owners make more money a lot more money in the playoffs than they do in the regular season. So if you shorten the regular season you increase the share, the portion of the season that is the playoffs, and that actually might help. That would help. Prob I think it would help more than a third of the owners in the league switching that structure just merely on that basis. It wouldn't help, you know, the Kings very much because the Kings don't make the playoffs very often. But there is a a group that would be hugely helped by that. Well, it might help the Kings because maybe Demarcus Cousins does doesn't get sick and Mike Malone doesn't get fired. Oh, interesting point. I think he still leaves, but even if even if that doesn't happen, but yeah, I, I, that is that actually ties in with something that I think would be an, a, a way to end this, which is where this is going. Like I, I think that one of the dynamics that is in play here is that as teams are getting a lot of salary cap space and players are hitting free agency more often, both because of shorter contracts and because they can't sign extensions because the league rules are stupid, they players are are getting to make more open choices and so i think that is going to really hurt the sacramentos of the world especially the teams that combine a small market with management that is largely unsuccessful because they don't have the incentive now they don't have they can't they don't have the stuff to keep him there well even if you do it right like look at boston yeah that's true. I, I, I mean, they or haven't... The Ma or the Mavericks, even. Like, a lesser example. I feel like Dallas would be somewhat attractive, but they haven't been able to get anybody. Yeah. Well, and, and, and you could think about, you know, that it's going to take a lot for Utah. And, and also, think about how much had to go right for Oklahoma City. You know, they've gotten this mm -hmm. nice run. And we could be 10 months away from that being done. And yeah, and I don't... Like, and who's the next small market stand-in, really? I, I guess it's probably Utah, but Utah doesn't have the Durant. They have a lot of great guys. I, I'm yeah, a huge they have, fan of the, they have. They have. They have Rudy. the surges. Yeah, they have. They have the surges. Yeah, they have. The, and I and yeah, and Rudy could eventually become. I think about the level of maybe like Westbrook, just in terms of aggregate impact, he'd be the opposite kind of. He'd be the he'd be defensive, and where Westbrook is such a gifted offensive player, but that's an if. That's not where those guys are now, and we know what they are. Yeah. And, and it and I mean it's probably not going to be the Pelicans because they spent their allocations of resources, money, and picks for to go short term because they have an older owner and things like that. And I think they I think they kneecap their own ceiling as well. And that's you know they're going to have Anthony Davis for another six years, and that's great, or another five years because he's a player option on the last year. But they're and that's great, and they're going to have him. But I don't know that they're going to reach that level either. 
No, I mean, like, the way is in which the New Orleans thing parallels Cleveland and LeBron's first run is just depressing. It is. It really is. Like, it just, you know, like, you see something and it shouldn't be that much of a coincidence. Like, you feel like that's kind of, like, that's just not even real at, at some point. Like, that's, like, that's how bad it is, I feel like. And he doesn't even have the hometown guilt, you know, that LeBron had, which I think the Cavs might have anticipated would be enough to just keep him there. Yeah. But Anthony Davis doesn't have that. I mean, I don't know if that means, you know, he'd go to his hometown or whatever, but unless they change the CBA around, and by his time they actually could because we'll have a new CBA in two years. But right now, I mean, so what the, what the Kings have to be, or what the, what the Pelicans have to be thinking about already is what the Warriors have been thinking about for the last couple of years, which is, when our guy hits unrestricted free agency, they need to choose us. And that means we need to be better than everyone else at everything. Or at least we need to be close enough that they will think about it. And the Warriors have, through hard work and good luck, they are in that spot, at least for right now. And I fully expect that they will be there in two years when Curry's a free agent. But the Pelicans, are. it's going to take a lot for them to get there because they don't even have the assets that the Warriors had to get to where they are. Yeah. I mean, like, the, the biggest advantage they have is the amount of time that they have him. Right. But even that, I mean, that you if you don't if you don't manage it well, that can go by in the blink of an eye, especially when yeah, you're in the situation like what Boston's in now where you're too good to get a good draft pick. Mm-hmm. And so. that's another, like, going back to the conferences thing, like, Boston could have been really good good right now. Like, or they, their future might have been a lot better if they had another chance to at another draft pick, which is something they would have had if they were in the West. Yeah, and if Brooklyn hadn't gotten a pick too. You know, Brooklyn Brooklyn might have may might have taken their foot off the gas a little bit. They could have, you know, they they would have dropped down. Maybe that pick is is 12th instead of 15th and or 10th or whatever, and that, that would have made a big difference. Or a small just, difference, just, but... Well, does does Brooklyn even even have any picks right now? That it, like that, I feel like that's the thing with Brooklyn. Like, there's no motivation to even rebuild. Well, yeah, Brooklyn, Brooklyn, yeah, they're in the situation. So, to correct myself, last year Brooklyn's pick went to the Hawks, who then gave it away for nothing. But the yeah, Brooklyn, they have so little of their own assets left that they're they're in the boat that Milwaukee is in where you know it's, they're going for it every year but they're in it because they have no real other option and they ended up making themselves worse this year so they could get out of Darren Williams's contract because he took such a big buyout which was good for them on the aggregate but they they don't have any incentive in the near future i i, I think maybe I, there's probably some year that they don't have their pick through a swap but it's it's going to be a while, and that's. I think that's bad for the league too because they're in a. I mean, Brooklyn is. They don't have the perception of being like a. You know, being a big New York team in that sense, partially because they've never. They haven't been that good yet. But it's. I think it's bad for the league to have teams like that just be floundering in the middle because I think that the league. I think the league is better when the Knicks are good. They're just not. I just checked, and the only thing that they have, I'm just on Real GM, just you know for brand synergy. If they can pick swap their second round pick in 2017, I think. Oh wait, no, no. If Boston swaps their 2017 first round pick with Brooklyn, they get a pick from Boston. So they might have a second round pick in 2017. It's they have nothing else. 
Yeah, because they're, yeah, the, yeah, so they're, pretty free. Yeah, it's, uh, it's sad. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah, so they have, yeah, and, and, and we're talking, yeah, on the large scale stuff, you know, because it's, a lot of it deals with pick swaps and out and out trades, like, there isn't even protection, so when you have that kind of circumstance, you have to push, you have to go for it, because what else are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, they're like, and, and they're bleeding money, so they want to make the playoffs, too, so, you know. That's, that's what happens when you when you try to create a contender with Paul Pierce and Kevin Durant after they're done in Boston. But that's an old story. What do you? Uh, what's your instinct on whether the Lakers are desirable for, let's say, Durant and Westbrook? But you know, guys of that caliber now that the, they haven't been good in a couple of years. Do you think it affects it at all, or is LA still LA? I mean, I think I think it affects it. I think uh, I think we saw it this season too and the past like they haven't been able to get anybody and you can't put the thing is if they had the same ownership I think it'd be different and I think Lakers would actually look different but the problem is that they don't and that you're not you're just I don't think the Lakers are the Lakers for a guy like Durant like I thought maybe Melo would go there because I think his his motivations are different but like a guy like Kevin Durant is so concerned with his legacy he's not gonna I don't think he's going to sign five years somewhere because this organization has good mystique. Like, yeah, I don't think that I, makes a difference. I, I agree with you, especially if they're not giving them, the, especially if they're not using the mystique as a tiebreaker. You know, if, if you can use that as a, if you can use that so you're you're close, like you're you're in the room for the other stuff. The team is close to as good, you know, because you're in a great you're in a great place to live and things like that. Then it's a, it's the best tiebreaker, you know, if you can do that, but. If you're forcing well, I think Kevin... what muddies that though is that like there's the Clippers now who are also good, and you see Blake Griffin who's turned into a megastar there. So like there's there's that appeal in them. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. And they're obviously they'll never be the Lakers, but like just as far as utility goes to a superstar, like they're a pretty good stand-in for what what the Lakers mean to players, if not necessarily to fans in LA. Yeah, and so I, th- I think what, what that does in connection with the other things is that it, it just makes it harder to, to do that pitch. It's still possible, I mean, because all it takes is one guy at first, and it'll eventually take two. But it, it, you're going you're gonna to need a lot of luck because there are going to be, let's say with Durant, they have to compete with the Wizards, who are in a, a different kind of market, but it is home for Durant. But they're way better, so he doesn't have to take the legacy risk that he has to take with with the Lakers. And if the Clippers, you know, if when they change it over, if they really clean house and they can do that, then you know the Clippers might have a they might have a really good case too because they'll probably have some holdovers and they've you know they built a successful organization and they have their even if Steve Ballmer is kind of you know he has his his rep. I think right now his brand in terms of ownership management is probably stronger than the buses right now. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like, Steve Ballmer is just, like, kind of lame. Like, he's not like, – I think he's pretty widely considered as a guy who stays out of the way, and I think that's really appealing. Yeah, and, I mean, you can have an owner that, that gets in the way. That's fine. I mean, Mark Cuban does well with that, though they're not getting the high, high-end high free agents except for Chandler Parsons, which was a different situation because he was restricted and – the Rockets ended up not matching, but yeah, and and I, I'm intrigued with Durant more than the other guys because I think depending on what happens this year, I think he has a lot more to lose because 
you know, Russ is Russ is a great player. He's done he's done a lot. I'm I I've known I've you know he's he's a very different player than Durant, but he's never won an MVP and things like that. And I think feel like Durant, if this next act isn't successful, then I think people are going to see his career in a very different light. Whereas with with Westbrook or Ibaka or even Blake Griffin, I feel like that is a little bit more. That is a little bit more settled in a way, just because of because they're not that incandescent talent in the same way as Durant is having already won an MVP. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think anybody would dispute that. Like Durant would he won the championship. He would be undisputed, probably considered the best player in the league, depending on how everything goes. And even if things went differently, like facts wise, he would still be considered the best player in the league. And aside from that, you know, then it becomes Durant. Like for him, it's like. Then it becomes about record books. Like Durant is an all-time talent if he has the championships. Like it's a, it's just like a totally different playing field. So I don't. Yeah, like that's what maybe like maybe somebody like Westbrook, but and not even Westbrook. I think like Westbrook obviously cares about winning too. He's a very competitive person. He's also very talented too. Like I think anybody who could potentially be a starter in the All-Star game, or like actually that's a, it's one of the worst ways to categorize players. It, it, uh, it, it, it works like, for this purpose. Anybody yeah, who's any, first or second team all NBA. All in, yeah, there we go. Yeah, anybody who is up there, I think, has way too much to lose by going to the Lakers. Whereas somebody else, let's say Damian Lillard, he stands to gain a lot of popularity, and he doesn't stand to lose a lot in terms of legacy. Yeah, because I don't think Portland's going to get into that mix in the next few years. I, I think yeah. it's unlikely. Yeah, and yeah, and that's the thing. Like they can only I think the thing with the Lakers is, is like the mystique thing can only attract the kind of player who is really really good but not necessarily good enough to make any team great. The only exception to that and this is something that they an opportunity they have not yet created but they will have next summer for the first time in a while is they could do it with multiple people, which is in a way what Miami did though Miami already had Dwayne Wade because they already had Dwayne Wade. But I think that if you could get two in the same class, or if you could acquire one via trade, like which is what Houston did, you know, Houston built that by stealing James Harden, and so they would need to do something like that, whether it's Demarcus Cousins or something like that first, and then then you have that piece. And so, like, if they could theoretically acquire Cousins, let's say next summer or at the trade deadline. Then when Westbrook comes a free agent a following year, let's say they're better next season, this following season, then you could be like, okay, the two of you guys can be the foundation of the next great Lakers team. That would might be enough. Yeah, that's that's the way it could work. Like you got to get the first step, and then you know, like that's you can you can dangle that over the big fish. Yeah, I th- that's that's a good way of putting it. Uh, anything else you want to talk about? Um, you know, I think we we pretty much covered it. It's fun. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. Oh, thanks for having me on. Thanks again to Sirit for taking the time. You can read her at Rolling Stone, Vice Sports, and Clipper Blog, among among other places. You can also follow her on Twitter, one of the best handles out there, Damian Trillard, D-A-M-I-A-N-T-R-I-L-L-A-R-D. This will be the last podcast I do in September. 
October will be more about season previews. I still need to do the Pacific. People have been reminding me on Twitter. I, I'm aware I'm just working on the guests and getting everything together on that. With the Pacific, I know so many people that I actually have to pare it down without hurting anybody's feelings, but I'm going to do it and it'll be great. And um, if you haven't listened to the podcast I did with Kevin Pelton, I was really proud of that one as well. It was one of, I think, one of the, my favorites that I've done. And yeah, so I'm going to move into season previews, going to be doing an over-under podcast and doing a couple other kind of more broad season previews along with the Pacific Division. And I'm thrilled with the guest list. It's actually pretty well set up for the next month. So I don't tell them ahead of time just because I don't want to get people's hopes up. As I always say, I appreciate your insight. I read everything. I respond to as much as I can. Best way is probably on Twitter if it can fit in 140 characters or whatever they expand it to. My Twitter handle is Daniel Rue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. You can also email me, daniel.larue at realgm.com. Couple other quick plugs. I am, I just started, well, just started a Facebook page. Danny LaRue NBA, which combines all my stuff everywhere, both the podcasts and, and the written work. And during the season, I mean, I still don't know everything yet, but I'll probably be writing a lot of different places. So it will coalesce all of that. I've also just started a weekly digest, which puts everything together. If that's a way that you like to experience things, the link should be in my, it's definitely in my Facebook profile, which should be on Twitter. If not, you can hit me up. And I, you know, going through all that, been, it's been fun to, to write on some different material, but as much fun as it is to think about and write in the abstract, actually getting to watch basketball is a lot more fun. So I'm really looking forward to that, even training camp preseason basketball, which is not the greatest thing in the world. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar. Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything. Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active.